alcoholic. And uh, before I get started, uh, she didn't raise her hand, but I would like to recognize uh, my loving wife in the front row here, who if it wasn't for somebody like her in my corner, you know, uh, life wouldn't be so easy. You know, uh, I was joking, you know, my wife married a don't drink, go to meetings type of guy, and now she's stuck with me. You know, the, uh, you know, I get... I get four personal days a year. I took one off to go to a buddy's anniversary. I took one off to celebrate my anniversary. I took one off to do a share-a-thon for my areas into group, and I took my last day off to do something like this. You know, in each and every step of the way, my wife was behind me and supported me on, you know, how I would spend my day off. And, uh, you know, so, Jennifer, thank you for uh, allowing me to do something like this. And uh, <clears throat> the other thing I just wanted to do uh, you know, this is being recorded, and uh, my mother has asked me if she could get a copy. So uh, on three, if everybody could just give a hi, Mom. One, two, three. Hi, Mom. That's what 800 people sound like, Mom. And, uh, you know, I was just talking to uh, Joanne before the meeting. You know, every time I speak, you know, I get nervous. You know, I get, uh, you know, the uh, every fear inventory I've ever done, you know, in my sobriety, you know, uh, the fear of being unloved, unaccepted, the fear of being an outcast, the fear of looking like an ass in public, you know, always shows up, you know. And uh, But I take a third step every morning, and I give my life to the care of God as I understand him. And uh, my third step pretty much boils down to what I want does not matter. And here I stand before you. You know, uh, you know, at a podium, and uh, I'm grateful for it. Uh, my sobriety date is May the 5th of 1996. I know you're all looking at me going, how the hell could a guy that young, you know, be that sober? <laughs> no, you aren't thinking that? That's okay. Column one, everybody here. Uh, column two, no. Um, seriously, though. And, uh, you know, my home group is the Longwood Love and Service Group. It meets uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays in Ridge, New York. Uh, my sponsor is Drew M. I sponsor a couple guys. My commitments in my home group are I'm part of the steering committee. Um, I'm on my area's, uh, you know, uh, Suffolk County's list of uh, tradition speakers. And, uh, you know, I'm involved in all three sides of our triangle, recovery, unity, and service. And, uh, you know, because that's how I was taught to stay sober. And, uh, you know, I'm up here to share in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And for anybody who's new, you know, if you haven't gotten to it yet, you know, my job is to share my experience, strength, and hope. And it says at the end of the preface, you know, if you have a drinking problem, we hope that you may pause in reading one of the 42 personal stories. You know, I'm not in the back of the book, but this is my personal story. And think, yes, that happened to me. Or more important, yes, I felt like that. Or most important, Yes, I believe this program can work for me, too. You know, I said every morning I take a third step, and my third step, you know, it promises me a whole bunch of cool things. You know, it promises me relief from selfishness. It promises me that my difficulties are going to be removed. But with that, I have to do God's will, and I have to show through me what God can do. You know, I have to show God's power, strength, and love. You know, and that's what I'm up here as an example to do. And, uh... <clears throat> You know, I was born June 29, 1976, in a place called Syosset, New York. And don't worry, I'm not going to start at day one. It's, uh, you know, if you ever find yourself in Syosset, New York, get a GPS because you're lost. You know, there's not much to it. But, you know, from, you know, June 29, 1976 to today, November 13, 2010, you know, it's been a long and winding road. You know, and uh, I like to say, you know, like I said, I'm going to share what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. You know, I like to boil it down to what it's like to be unplugged from God, what it's like to find out that I need to be plugged into God, and what my life is like today because I'm plugged into God. 
you know. And, uh, you know, I grew up in an alcoholic family. You know, you know, I, like I said, my last name's Cassidy. You know, big surprise, I'm Irish. And in my family, you're either alcoholic. If you're not, you marry one just so you can fit in. And it's just a long line of sick, acceptable behavior when it comes to alcoholism. And that's what I grew up with. You know, I was a little, little teeny kid, and I remember, you know, I never want to be like Dad. I never want to be like, you know, Grandma or Grandpa. I never want to be like those people. I never want to drink. You know, but I don't know about your alcoholism, but mine is not one that I signed up for a career day at school. You know, should I be a doctor, a lawyer, or a drunk? Well, the line at the drunk table is awfully short. I can just get it and squeeze on in there. And, uh, you know, it's a disease. You know, I have the disease of alcoholism today, and thank God, you know, that I know that. And thank God that... You know, he saw fit to uh, create a solution to it. And, uh, you know, in speaking, I was always told, you know, what it was like. My drinking is only one-third of my story. I have about 45 minutes, so if 15 minutes from now I'm still talking about drinking, somebody throw a shoe at me, you know, because I'm going on too long, you know, about the problem, and I'm wasting a lot of your precious time and mine not talking about God. <clears throat> you know, like I said, I grew up in alcoholism. It was something I never wanted to partake in. It was something I never wanted. You know, the, you know, in the big book, especially in the lost chapter, you know, Two Wives, where it talks about how families are torn apart, children can't stand being a part of this. You know, that was my upbringing. You know, anybody on the outside, if you looked at my life, you would say, well, look, they got a four-bedroom colonial in the suburbs of Long Island. They have a boat. They go on to, you know, they go on a winter vacation. They go on a summer vacation. You know, dad's gainfully employed. He's making money. You would look at it and go, wow, they've got everything that's supposed to make you happy. You know, and I, I did. I had a great childhood, except for one problem. It was my childhood, you know, and I'm never satisfied. You know, ego's ne my ego is never happy with what I have. I always wanted more. I never felt like I fit in. I never felt like I was good enough. And if you found out about me, I was in a lot of trouble. So I had to do my best to cover up my inadequacies, pretend I'm somebody I'm not, always wanted to be somebody else, you know, and using my tools to get through life. You know, and, uh, you know, I had, like I said, I grew up in alcoholism, you know, uh, you know, uh, verbal abuse, physical abuse was part of my upbringing. You know, it was just, it was just a grand old time, you know, and, uh, you know, at the age of eight, I was sexually abused by a next door neighbor. You know, so that incident in my life, coupled with what was going on at the age of eight, I was like, if there is a God, I don't want nothing to do with him because look what he does. You know, look at the way I get treated. Look at my life. You know, so if there is one, and, I, and I'm in Catholic school at the time, but I'm the guy who's cheating off somebody on a religion test, so I just kind of missed the point, you know. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, and I'm going, I'm going through life. You know, there is no God. I don't want any part of him. And then, you know, around the time I was 16, 17, something magical happened. I discovered the answer to it all, the thing that would make me fit in. I discovered alcohol. You know, and I start drinking, and, you know, like it describes in the book, you know, I don't even realize until I come here that the first 16 years of my life, I'm restless, irritable, discontented, just going through life, not knowing what's going on, you know, and then I discover this alcoholism, and within a few, within a few drinks of drinking alcohol, it's all gone, and everything is okay. You know, I'm an alcoholic. I don't drink for taste. I don't drink, you know, I just drink simply for effect. You know, I, I mean, I drank some of the craziest concoctions, you know, like, uh, you know, you know, like we were joking in a, in a car ride down here. You know, it's like if given a sufficient reason, it tastes like crap. Will you not drink it? It's like absolutely not. You know, it's alcohol. I've got to finish it. You know, that's my buddy. That's what fixes my problems. That's what makes me feel okay. You know, that's, you know, the, 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 the uh, you know, the spiritual malady is taken care of with this outside thing, you know, and I drink and things become okay, you know. 
And drinking to me is not a problem. Anybody who had a problem with my drinking, you know, well, it's not my drinking problem, it's yours, you know. And, you know, I talk about it all the time. If you try to get between me and a drink, I'm sorry, but you're a very distant second. You know, you are not going to win. You know, and, <clears throat> you know, in my drinking, I end friendships, I end relationships, I end, you know, I, ran, I ruined family affairs. You know, I was the guy that, you know, I started to, at the end of my drinking to be that guy that, you know, it was just, I was an embarrassment. You know, like, uh, you know, like my, my grandparents had a 50th wedding anniversary one time and it was, it was at a hall and they rented the hall and it was all done up and they had a DJ and stuff and I walk in there and what do they have? An open bar and somebody was kind enough to write all the beers, you know, these are all the choices that you have. You see, most people look at it as, oh, we have variety. Oh, look, I can have this or I can have that. I'm alcoholic. I look at it as a mission. I got to go from top to bottom and then back up, you know, and that was my goal for the evening, you know, because I need to feel okay. I need to feel like I can fit in, you know, because I'm going to an affair filled with people and these are my family and I don't fit in, but you've got a mission for me. I've got something that I can do to take care of it. You know, and this is, you know, this is on the tail end of, you know, me giving up a uh, college career. You know, I was in, you know, I was in college my freshman year. I went to North Carolina and, uh, you know, to go out of state because, you know, going away fixes me. I don't know about you people, but, you know, if I get away from, you know, where I'm at, you know, things will be okay. You know, the only problem I know today is I bring me with me. You know, and uh, so me and my sick behaviors and attitudes and drinking problem, you know, we, we take a road trip down to uh, UNC Greensboro. And, uh, you know, like I said, I bring me with me. And what I spend, I spend my first semester looking around. Okay, who's going to wrap me out? Who's the stoolie? Because we show up the first day of school when we're in a freshman dorm, and it's a dry dorm because we're all underage. And we're told, you know, and, and this is, you know, I always, ha I always have to take a laugh at this one. They tell us the first day we're there, look, you can't do drugs because drugs are illegal. If you get caught doing drugs, you're going to get arrested and you'll get a record, you know, so you don't want to do that. If you're caught drinking, you're all underage, which is illegal, so you'll also get arrested, but we also send you to AA meetings. You know, in the back of my head, I'm like, who the hell wants to wind up in AA, you know? I, I knew at 17 I didn't want to want to, you know, I didn't not want to be here, <clears throat> you know, because I bring me with me wherever I go. You know, and, uh, you know, so I spent my first semester looking around who's not going to wrap me out, who's not going to drop the dime. I'm restless, irritable, discontent, can't be happy, uncomfortable in my own skin. Everything around me is just no good, you know. And I spent my second semester just going, okay, now that I've solved the problem, you know, I get a guy who's overage, he buys me alcohol, he's got no problem. You know, this place, you know, I scoped out all the places, you know, where, where you can buy me what and what proof it is and what, you know. I'm looking for the best bank for my buck. You know, I, I'm not looking for, I'm not looking for taste. I'm not looking to impress anybody. What's the cheapest stuff with the most amount of alcohol that it's going to fix me quick? You know, and that's the way I drank. I drank like a mad dog. You know, that's, that I, I pursued the effect produced by alcohol like there was no tomorrow. That was the panacea to all my problems, as Dr. Bob says in his story. You know, and I started drinking like that. And in a short time, those people who loved me as a friend were just like, we don't like the way you drink. And I go, well, that's too bad for you. You know, I remember one of the, uh, one of my buddies, you know, was seriously dating this girl. You know, they had been going out the whole time we were there and they're in a serious relationship and they get engaged. And she was the first person that ever said to me, Matt, we love you, but when you drink, we can't stand you. And I was like, well, then we can't hang out. You know, and I go to my buddy and I say to him, hey, look, it's either me or her. Which one is it going to be? You know, when I tell you I was shocked that he chose her, I am not over exaggerating. <laughs> You know, you know, gee, I don't have a problem with selfishness and self-centeredness, do I? 
And uh, like I said, so I drop out of college and I start ruining, you know, now I'm spending more time with mom and dad and, you know, their basement is becoming my favorite, you know, uh, you know uh, watering hole, you know, because I'm underage and I can't drink at a lot of bars unless I drive into Queens. You know, like I said, it took me three hours to drive down here, but I used to drive an hour and a half so that I can drink in bars. So what's an extra hour and a half to carry God's message and show that he works? You know, works for me, any lengths. You know, what are you willing to do? Anything. And I meant it. And I still, and I still mean it. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, like I said, so I'm making a perfectly good time out of ruining my life and those around me. You know, and, uh, Oh, I should throw in here the, the, the high mom is because, uh, you know, like I said, my mother went into Al-Anon in 1984. You know, so my mother is one of those black belts in Al-Anon, you know. <laughs> and I live with this woman, and I'm drinking like a fish and just pretty much ruining my life, th throwing it down the toilet, and she has to sit there and watch it with her 12 steps. You know, and one of my favorite times about, you know, if given sufficient reason, can you stop? Well, if I'm a hard drinker, I could, but I'm not. I'm the real alcoholic on page 21. You know, my mom says to me one day over a kitchen table, you know, after a heavy night of drinking, I can't remember what the hell I did. You know, my favorite mornings, oh, crap, I can't remember, and they're going to find out. You know, do you know what you did last night? I was, like, oh. I was like, no, I don't, but I don't want you to know that I don't. You know, her Al-Anon tells her that, you know, she had to, you know, she had to tell me, you know. She had to get off her chest with my drinking dust to her. And she sat there. You know, and I come downstairs and I got a pounding headache. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, my day starts off with, you know, upset stomach, feel like I'm still going to throw up, pounding headache, and you want to talk to me about feelings. It's like, ugh. You know, coupled with that stink eye, which anybody who's a mom here, you guys, like, got that mastered. You know, so I got, I got, I got the stink eye, the headache, the upset stomach, and it's just all this going on, and she wants to talk about feelings. You know, she wants to tell me how my drinking affects her. You know, and how she's embarrassed by me, how she's upset by me. You know, and she tells me all these things, and she ends it with, if you were not my son, I would throw you out. Now, I'm an alcoholic. All I hear is, I'm her son. She's not going to throw me out. Rock on. Let's party. You know, and it continued for another six months. You know, the poor woman, I put her through a living hell. You know, and, uh, you know, so that's the way I drank, because I'm an alcoholic. You know, if you came between me and a drink, who cares about you? You know, me and the drink, it's all about me. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that's the root of my problem. You know, I'm the alcoholic with the spiritual malady that alcohol t fixes. And why would you not want something that fixes that coupled with, you know, the mental obsession? My mind tells me, regardless of what's going on, happy, glad, sad, mad, with a girlfriend, without a girlfriend, with money, without money, with a house, without a house, with a car, without a car, you know, to drink. You know, this is the mind on my shoulders. You know, this is the one with the mental obsession that, you know, that my book says the main problem centers in the mind. This is the one I'm stuck with, you know, and the bitch about that is I can't fix it. You know, my book tells me the only thing that's going to fix that is finding God. You know, I got that mind coupled with, you know, the body that suffers from a physical allergy, that, that, you know, the phenomenon of craving, which the doctor's opinion said is limited to this class of people, which means you either have it or you don't. If you got it, you're alcoholic. If you don't, then you're not. You know, and I have that. I have that phenomenon of craving that when I drink, at certain times I will lose control. You know, at certain times, you know, I, I love that on page uh, 20, 24, 34. I'm kind of drawing a blank right now. But, you know, that I've lost the power of choice in drink. The mental obsession is going to win out at certain times. So if I could think my way through a drink, I sure as hell wouldn't have to go to AA, let alone drive three hours, you know, to share with you, that, you know, what God has done for me in my life. You know, because I cannot choose whether I'm going to drink or not. I can choose what my book says to live along spiritual lines or die an alcoholic death.
you know, door number one or door number two, what's it going to be, big guy? You know, and it's like, I don't know about you people, but I look for wiggle room. You know, I mean, come on, isn't there a door one and a half? Do I really have to do all this stuff? Do I really have to make all the amends? You know, I look for wiggle room because the stuff that this program asked me to do to get well, if, you're, if your ass is not on the line, it's a lot. But I'm the real alcoholic. You know, so die an alcoholic death or grow along spiritual lines when I get here and I'm presented with that stuff. You know, I just said I'm the alcoholic, you know, I'm, I'm the alcoholic that has the mental obsession, the physical allergy, and the spiritual malady. You know, I can't fix me. I have to find something else. And that is what was given to me when I came to this program. You know, these are your options. You know, and on, you know, the morning of May the 5th, 1996, like I said, I knew the jig was up. <clears throat> you know, because on May the 4th, I'm going to a party at my brother's apartment. You know, we're going to a party, and I live in Suffolk County, Long Island, okay? I have to drive from my house through Suffolk County, through Nassau County, to get to my brother's house in Queens, which is part of New York City, which means NYPD is too busy, you know, to be patrolling for underage kids drinking, so that's where I used to drive an hour and a half to drink, you know? I used to go to Queens. I used to go to my brother's house. And on May the, you know, the, day, the afternoon of May the 4th, 1996, I leave my house. And by this time, my drinking was bothering me. I, I knew I was somehow different, but I was still under this delusion that I can control it. You know? So on May the 4th, 1996, I leave my driveway, and I am not going to drink at this party. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to go hit on some girls. You know, I'm going to get along with guys. I'm going to crack jokes. I'm going to be comfortable in my own skin, and I am not going to drink. Not because I don't want to drink, but because I'm going to prove to you people that I'm not alcoholic. If you've ever had to prove to somebody you're not alcoholic, chances are you probably are. You know, my wife is not alcoholic. She's never had to prove to me she's not alcoholic. You know, and uh, I leave my driveway. And I'm not going to drink, and I'm going to prove to you people that I'm not an alcoholic. That's my mindset. That's I've made up my mind. It's firm resolution. You know, in my mind, I am not going to drink. And I leave that driveway. By the time I get to the Nassau County border, which is 45 minutes, that mind with the mental obsession tells me, convinces me, well, it's going to be a six-hour party if you buy a six-pack and you only drink one an hour. That's social drinking. You still won't be an alcoholic. So why don't you go buy that six-pack? And I go, okay, sure. Because the mental obsession has just taken over. My resolution means jack. And once I start drinking, all bets are off. I think it took exactly 45 minutes for somebody to tick me off, and it was like, oh, well, if you're, gonna, if you're not going to appreciate me being in your company and you're going to do that to me, well, I'm just going to get drunk, and I'll show you. You know, that's my rationale, and my book tells me you can do that all you want, but it makes no sense because if you're an alcoholic, you're playing Russian roulette with your life, you know. So if it makes sense to you at the time, rock on, but I'm an alcoholic, for me to believe that there's a sufficient reason for me to drink again, you know, I might as well just get a gun and put one in the chamber and see if I luck out because that's what my drinking is for me. You know, there is no going in and out for me because once I start drinking, I cannot control it. You know, I don't know where I'm going to wind up. I don't know the things I'm going to be doing. You know, so I wake up the morning of May the 5th, 1996 with a hangover, an upset stomach, 
feeling like I'm going to throw up, and it's just another day in the life of Matt Cassidy. 19 years of age. Look at your life, pal. You know, and wasn't happy with it. You know, it still took two weeks for me to be convinced that I needed to come here and get the help of you people. You know, because I may have a drinking problem, but I sure am not alcoholic. I don't even know what an alcoholic is at this point until somebody bothers to buy me a big book and point out the things that are in it. But I know I'm not one. You know, that's how that's how sick we are. You know, I actually I, that's how sick I am. You know that I don't even know how sick I am. That's pretty sick. You know, the delusion that I live in, you know, denial is great, but delusion is what my the word the, my book uses the word delusion several times. Delusion is a lie that I actually believe. You know, denial is not wanting to believe. You know, my book uses that word delusion purposely. You know, because I actually believe the lie that I'm not as sick as I, you know, as I actually am. You know, and uh you know, <clears throat> And I walk into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and I'm looking for every reason in the book not to fit in. My first meeting, uh, yeah, hi, I'm Matt, and I think I might be an alcoholic, but I'm not sure. And the speaker was like, you know, after they let me ramble on, you know, thank God they let me ramble on, you know. And at the end of it, the speaker just goes, if you think you're alcoholic, you probably might be. Next, I'm like, what, no deep meaning? You know, I'm looking for him to go, nah, not you, us, yeah, you, no. Didn't get that, you know. And I start coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, and my first four months I like to refer to as my Mission Impossible years, more months, I should say, because my first four months of sobriety, I'm getting don't drink, go to meetings, go to the diner, go bowling, join the softball team, you know, make friends, you know. And that's what I'm doing. Doing absolutely nothing to take care of the internal condition. You know, and I thought 24 hours, one day at a time meant when you wake up in the morning, you know, find out as quickly as possible what your problem of the day is, you know, try and fix it yourself. If that don't work, go to a meeting, you know, complain about the problem, you know, that's going to cut it in half. Then go to the diner, have some coffee and a shake. And then, you know, if you do all that stuff, you know, then you're not going to drink. But if you don't do that stuff, you know, the Mission Impossible, you know, when I get up in the morning and find out what my problem of the day is, the fuse is lit. So I've only got 24 hours before the time bomb explodes. And when the time bomb explodes, I'm going to get drunk. You know, this is my definition of recovery. You know, and at four months, I was closer to wanting to off myself, you know, just not feeling just ick with life, you know. You know, and I find myself back in North Carolina because I had gone back to school. You know, and thank God for the man he put in my life. You know, the, the, you know, I, I go down to North Carolina, like I said, four months sober. Guy picks me up at the airport. I, I, you know, I think I'm up to the ninth step ready to make amends. And I tell him, you know, hey, remember that first year where I was down here and I made your life hell and I used you and stole things from you? And, you know, I wasn't a nice guy. But don't worry, I'm an AA now and I'm not drinking. And, you know, by the way, drive me to a meeting later tonight. And, you know, I'm trying to explain the AA program to him. Oh, yeah, we go to meetings and, you know, then we go out to the diner and, you know, and, you know, you know, I, I have to get this guy a sponsor, but I'm four months sober so I can shop. You know, I'm in a position, you know, that I get to select who is going to be able to work with me. Aren't I great? You know, talk about resurgence of the ego and not even knowing it. You know, I'm so sick, again, that I don't even realize how sick I am. Again, that's pretty sick. You know, 
thank God, that on my second meeting in North Carolina, you know, he put this man by the name of Joe Jay in the room. You know, Joe Jay got sober at 19. I'm like, oh, that's how old I was when I got sober. Cool, me and him got something in common. He starts talking about the day he realized that there was a God in his life and that he could have a relationship with him and he could fix all his problems and that he can go through life happy, joyous, and free and never have to worry about taking a drink. And how he was sitting at his desk and he cried when he realized that. And I'm like, well, crying things a little too much. But everything else he said, definitely want what that guy has. And, you know, like I said, God, so God puts this guy in my life who's going to teach me. You know, and what that guy did the first night, exactly what the book says that he's supposed to do, you know, when he's got a prospect. He's like, okay, let's go chat. Let's even see if you're alcoholic. Tell me about your drinking. You got physical upset. You know, you got physical, you know, you got spiritual malady. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We talk about that for a little bit. Okay, you got, you got mental obsession. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you got physical allergy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good. All right, so now you're alcoholic. Let's talk about, you know, the solution to it. You know, it's called the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I refer, 14 and a half years later, I still refer to it as the guy bitch slapped me with a big book. Because I had one. And I was told to read it. And I read the big book like you're supposed to read it, like, you know, a James Clavell novel. Okay, start on page one. You know, page one is Bill's story. Just totally skip the doctor's opinion because, you know, they put boring stuff in there, you know, those Roman numerals. You know, I never even read that, you know. And I start on page one. And, you know, so I, I read it, I read, I read it. I, I'm looking for character development. I'm looking for surprise ending. None of this stuff is coming, you know. Uh, but, but when asked, did you read it? Oh, yes, I read the first 164 pages. Thank you very much. You know, and I think I'm well. You know, four months sober, I'm well. You know, and he sits down and he starts off with, okay, Matt, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many of thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. By the way, that's the book we're going to be reading. And I'm like, that's some of them, you know. Don't you know who you're talking to? I'm smart. I'm intelligent. You know, it's me you're talking to. We don't have to go through this. You know, and he's like, we're going to work the steps and we're going to read the book together and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And I'm just like, oh, crap, this guy's asking me to do something. You know, I'm like, I got to look for a loophole. And I'm like, oh, well, you know that whole thing about no relationships for a year? Well, I've got a girlfriend and I'm not ready to give her up. So if you've got a problem with that, I don't think we'll be able to work together. He goes, Pfft. he goes, I don't care. <laughs> He goes, if you're in a relationship, that's your problem. You know, he goes, that's, that, things are going to come up that, that you're going to have to deal with. He goes, that says that no one he just doesn't even say that in here. Have you ever read this? Well, yeah, I read it. Okay, did you apply any of it? Um, can I get back to that? You know, never realized until I sat down with that man that's a set of directions, you know, on how to work these steps, how to get a God into my life, the God that's going to solve my problems. You know, and me and that gentleman worked through the 12 steps you know, for the remainder of my year at college. But by that time, I had to move back to New York. You know, I continued to go to college here in New York and, you know, had to get, you know, bounced around from sponsor to sponsor, found out a whole, there's a whole bunch of guys that talk a lot of really cool stuff in here but really don't do it, you know. I want what you have. Oh, what you have is really smoke and mirrors. Okay, never mind. I don't want what you have, you know. And, I'm you know, I'm on a quest and, I, you know, I had a uh, – you know, God did put some really powerful, you know, spiritual advisors in my life throughout the years. You know, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, I do these steps. And then, I don't know about you people, but I thought the 12 steps was like, you know, a 100-yard dash. You know, I'm going to give it everything I got, okay? 
And then I get to step 12, and I think there's a finish line. So now I was like, okay, cool. You know, maybe I'll sponsor a couple of guys. Maybe I'll go to some meetings, you know. And I fell back into the old pitfall, you know, with several years sober of that don't drink and go to meetings is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, that just hanging out and bitching about the problem of the day. And I fell back into the old pitfall of where I was with years, years sober. You know, now I'm the 25-year-old guy, the 27-year-old guy. You know, the years keep on going, but I'm not doing anything to grow spiritually. You know, I knew what the answer was, but I just kind of stopped doing it because I thought sobriety, like I said, was a 100-yard dash. You know, okay, I'm here. I'm done. Race is over. I broke the, broke the ribbon, you know. And I start dying again, you know. I'm not doing spiritual things. I start dying again. And, you know, my life gets bad. I don't like it. You know, those th things around, the spiritual malady starts to come back, and I'm not treating it. And it's just, it's not a fun time. And I have no alcohol to take care of it. You know, just recently I turned back to the steps, you know, about, about uh, eight, nine months ago. You know, I was in such a funk, you know. And it was just, you know, restless, irritable, discontented, and not being able to drink is not a fun place to be, you know. And I was the guy that was like, well, I got sober in 1996. I've got a third edition. You know, all you new people, you know, you, you got sober when there's a fourth edition. Look at me. You know, I've got my old third edition. I'm, I'm living off yesterday's spiritual awakening trying to be well, you know. And about nine months ago, I said, you know what? What's wrong with starting back? It's page one again, you know. And I went out and I brought a brand new fourth edition, brand spanking new, you know. And I grabbed some highlighters. And I said, okay, from my understanding of this book, there are beliefs that I have to have. There is action I have to take. There are promises that are made, you know, and there's prayers that have to be said. So I, I came up with all these different colors, and I said, I'm going to go through this book, starting on page one, with this color scheme. And I'm going to go through this book. And where it's where I'm highlighting a prayer, I'm going to say that prayer. Where it says there's something I have to believe, I'm going to see if I still believe that. And most importantly, where there's action to take, I'm going to do that action. You know, and I started back out on another, you know, another quest, you know, to find more God. You know, because I cannot live off the spiritual experience that I had, however long ago it was. I had to have a new one. You know, and I start going through that book, and oh, there's a, you know, do I really believe that now? Do I still really believe that my life is on the line when it comes to AA? You know, is it really grow spiritually or die an alcoholic death for me today? And I had to sit with that. You know, the answer obviously was no. You know, this is just the way it is. I'm just going to do the bare minimum and expect everything, you know, all the great results. You know, and those around me who were getting new houses and new cars and in a happy relationship and, you know, things were happy, joyous, and free for them, well, I'll just sit there on the sidelines and judge the hell out of them because they're getting, they have what I want and I don't have it. And you know what? You know, screw them. Screw them. That was my attitude before I started going through this work. You know, I wanted what you people had, but I stopped doing what I was supposed to be doing to get it. And I'm there. And again, I'm so sick, I don't even realize that the only obstacle is me. I'm the only thing standing between me and being happy, joyous, and free. I'm the only one standing between me and God. Old belief systems had come back. You know, my book says get rid of old belief, you know, get rid of your old ideas, otherwise the result is going to be nil. My book told me half, a half measures would avail me nothing. But I'm doing 50%, wanting 100%, you know. 
I stopped doing the things I was supposed to be doing. And that's, you know, for an alcoholic, that's where you wind up. You know, that's where I wound up. And I started going through that book, and every time I came to some action, I would take some action. And when I did, got to the prayers, I would say the prayers, and I would sit with them, and I would look at them. Like I said, I say a third-step prayer every morning now, you know, not because, you know, it's like, oh, i got to give it to God, i got to give it to God. No, I look at my third-step prayer every morning and go, what does it mean to me today? You know, and I look at that, you know, God, I offer myself to thee. What does that mean? What are you going to give to God? I don't know, I, I give God my money, I give God my wife, I give God my house, my car, my finances, my interactions, my reactions, and my actions in life. I, God, I offer myself to thee, all of me. You got it. Why do I have to give it to God? You know, my book says, I offer myself to thee, so I better do thy will. It's not what I'm supposed to get. You know, it's what I'm supposed to be able to do. God, if you got me, use me. You know. Relieve me of the bondage of self, which means I cannot take me away from the bondage of self. I cannot get rid of selfishness. I can't will my way out of being, you know, I'm going to, you know, I can't wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to be less selfless. I'm going to be more selfless and less selfish. I've made up my mind, and that's what I'm going to do. No, can't do that. Not with my mind. Not with the alcoholic mind. I can't make up my mind because it says that's where the main problem is, located in my mind. I can't use that mind to make up, you know, that I'm going to be less selfish, you know. Relieve me the bondage of self, again, so that I'm better do thy will. Take away my difficulties. Why is God going to take away my difficulties? Okay? My book tells me God's going to take away my difficulties so that I can show you people. You know, take away my difficulties so that I may, so that I may bear witness to those that I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. God takes away my difficulties not so I can have a good time in life. God takes away my difficulties to show anybody who's having a hard time, look what I can do. Look at my power. Look how much I love you. You know, one of my favorite lines right now currently is page 132 of the big book. We have recovered and been given the power to help others. You know, I don't know about you people, but there go the back, there go the hairs on the back of my neck. I came in here a useless piece of shit taker. And look what God can do. I take no credit for who stands before you. I'm the guy who opened up the talk going, if it was up to me, I would not be up here because I just want to be loved and accepted by you people and just kind of blend in and be a part of. No, God says, take center stage, pal. Go up there and show them what I can do. You know, I'm going to show through you how much power, how much love, and what my way of life looks like. Because that house that my mother almost threw me out of, okay, like I said, that's my wife sitting right there. I got married. I'm the type of guy that you can want to spend the rest of your life with today. When we got married, we bought that house. You know, well, I, I always say that. I bought the house. Yeah, pff, like I had that much money in the bank, okay? I went to a bank, and my financial affairs are fixed to, the, fixed to the point that the bank goes, yeah, okay, we'll lend you a couple hundred thousand dollars, and go ahead, reside in our house till you're done paying us off in 30 years, okay? I could make a commitment today for 30 years. Yeah, I'll be there, okay? I got a driver's license in my pocket, that's got my picture on it, an address that if you go to, you'll find me there, you know. And to accompany that driver's license, I have a car that's paid for with a spare tire, a jack, insurance card that's up to date, inspection sticker that's good, and a registration that the state of New York goes, yep, you got your car, okay. That's what God can show me that he can do. I was a college dropout working at a retail place, about to get fired from a retail job guy that walked in that door, you know. And if you've ever worked retail, you've got to screw up successfully on consecutive basis to get fired from retail, 
And that's where I was. And that's what God can do with a guy like that. You know, what it was like, my unplugged years, you know. My fa- I suffered. My family suffered. My employer suffered. You know, I wanted a paycheck for a day's work, which I never gave a full day of work. You know, I was a taker my entire life. You know, I, I always talk about it. You know, I said my introduction, you know, to service work and Alcoholics Anonymous by my sponsor, you know, was, you know, Matt, when are you going to start being a giver? I'm like, what do you mean? When are you going to start being a giver? You've been a taker your whole life. When are you going to be a giver? Uh, you know, oh, and if you ever uttered the words, what do you mean? It's been explained to me whenever I say the words, what do I mean? I'm digging for how much truth you really want from me, you know, because I, I kind of want to stop at a certain point, you know, well, what do you mean? You know, well, I mean, how, when are you going to start doing something? That's exactly what I mean. Oh, um, well, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I mean, I, I dump my cigarette, I, I, I dump my ashtray, throw out my coffee cup, and I push in my chair. I'm doing service. I'm giving. He said, no, no, no. He said, you dump your ashtray that you were smoking out of. You know, you threw out your coffee cup that you drank coffee out of. He said, and you pushed in a chair that your ass occupied. He goes, your mother raised you right. Now go push in his chair, throw out his coffee cup, and dump his ashtray. Do something for somebody else and not have a price tag on it. You know, go do. You know, and like I said, you know, that, that, that guy also gave me a talk one time, Matt. You know, you're kind of into the steps now. You're kind of grounded. You know, you're speaking at places. And, uh, you know, you, you consider yourself a member of Alcoholics Anonymous? I'm like, well, yeah, of course I am, you know. Okay. You want to be a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous? Oh, well, yeah, of course I do. You know, I, I always want to be good at something in my life. I may as well be, you know, an alcoholic, you know. And he's like, okay, good. He says, why don't you start learning those traditions? You know, because the traditions, he says, are AA's 12 biggest screw-ups that they made in their early years, the 12 biggest mistakes that AA made from the inside that almost destroyed it as an organization and a fellowship. Why don't you learn what not to do in Alcoholics Anonymous and then start sharing that stuff, too? You know, and it's like, well, that's got nothing to do with me, dude. You know, selfishness, self-centered is my problem. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, if I wasn't married, I really don't think, hey, what's up, baby? I'm fluent in the traditions would be a great pickup line, you know. (laughs) And I'm just like, I don't know. Well, okay, if you say so. And I started reading Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, Pass It On. I'll be honest, I've tried to read AA Comes of Age three times. I've failed successfully, usually around page 55. I'm going to try again soon in the future. You know, but I started learning about AA's history. And what am I a part of? You know, you learn such great things. You know, my big, one of my biggest problems in sobriety has always been fear. You know, now I'm a guy. Guys ain't supposed to be afraid, you know, afraid. You know, John Wayne charges, you know, charges up a hill, you know, with a nine millimeter in his hand to kill the enemy. You know, that's a man. You know, men aren't supposed to be afraid. You know, fear's always been my biggest one. So, what am I going to do with that fear? You know, I got to give it to God. My book tells me to give it to God. You know, and I start learning these things about where AA come from, where AA comes from, and my fear of my biggest one of does God have my back? You know, does does God does that does God really have me? 
in the palm of his hand, safe and protected, as it says in you know the promises that we'll read later. You know, and when you read the history, you know, you got all of this stuff that could not have been planned by anybody else. You know, you got Bill Wilson just drinking him, drinking his face off. You know, in Brooklyn, he gets visited by his buddy Ebby Thatcher, his old drinking buddy. He says, "Bill, I found religion. Okay, I found God. I found a way out." Because Ebby got visited by a guy named Roland Hazard. You know, who Roland Hazard had money to be able to visit Carl Jung. You know, it, it talks about it. You know, one of the best psychiatrists at the time. You know, so Roland comes to Ebby and is like, "Hey, if you have a spiritual experience, you're not going to drink." Okay, and Bill brings out Ebby brings out the bill. You know, and Bill sits with it for a couple of days, winds up at Towns Hospital, okay? And Bill, having gone to Towns Hospital, meets this guy, Dr. Silkworth, who tells Bill, you know, by the way, you're an alcoholic, okay? We don't know why, but you guys are different from everybody else, okay? You have a mental obsession, a physical allergy, which is just about as alcoholic as a day is long. Okay, so when Bill Wilson, for the first time in the history of the disease of alcoholism since man has crushed grapes, okay, problem of spirit, you know, problem of the alcoholic, mental obsession, physical allergy, meets the solution, spiritual malady, got to take a course of action. And Bill finds himself in Akron, Ohio, you know, on a business venture that's gone horribly bad. And his answer after six months of trying to sober people up in New York is, I'm going to call this guy off a directory, and he, you know, he puts him in touch with Dr. Bob, and Dr. Bob is about as spiritual as anybody can be. He's been a member of the Oxford group forever, but has never taken any course of action to get well. You know, after a relapse, Dr. Bob gets off his ass, makes him amends. June 10, 1935, birth date of Alcoholics Anonymous. That could not be worked out by anybody else other than a God who's got my back, you know, God knew way back in 1935, you know, that people needed help. And then Bill Wilson, problem meets solution, and Bill formed, you know, formed this wonderful fellowship with the help of Dr. Bob, Bill Dodds, and Alcoholics Anonymous Number 3, Clarence Snyder, and a whole bunch of other, you know, hundred men and women who bothered to write this book, you know, to tell me precisely how to recover in 1996, give me specific directions to do, you know tells me that my main problem is lack of power. I am powerless, okay? So go get some power, and 2 through 9 is going to get you some power. Live in 10, 11, and 12, okay? And you can continuously plug into that power, and you can recover from a helpless state of mind and body, as was read up here, and you can be a recovered alcoholic. Oh, my God. Talk about something that when I realize that my life is on the line, I want that. And I pursue that with the desperation of a drowning man, my book says. <laughs> you know, don't throw me a life vest 15 minutes from now. Throw it to me now. Save my life now, please, God, you have me. You know, my sobriety can best be summed up by, I came in here, you told me I needed God. I did some work. I found out I wanted God. I do some more work, and I am grateful that God gets to show up. You know, one of the ten step promises, we have entered the world of the spirit. You know, what does that look like? What does that experience look like? If you do not have that experience of living in the world of the spirit, I encourage you, you know, do some more step work.
get a hold of somebody who says, yeah, I understand what it is to live in the world of the Spirit. You know, I come here, I come here to speak, I get to live in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the spirit of the fellowship, human form. Love you people, each and every one of us. You know, because I was a guy who got thrown out of family gatherings and I get invited to come down here. This is the fellowship of the spirit. I'm sorry, this is the spirit of the fellowship. You know, the other, the closing paragraph we read before, the fellowship of the spirit. That's something that you cannot experience unless you were living in the world of the spirit. You know, one of my best friends today, you know, is a guy by the name of J.R. You know, he gave me this hat. Stay. That's the motto of his group, primary purpose group, you know, big book study group. You know, that's their motto, stay. Don't keep coming back, stay. You're here. Why do you need to keep coming back? Just stay. You know, that, like I said, that guy's one of my best buddies. Him and I have been talking at least once a week, heartfelt conversations, tears of joy, tears of, you know, sadness spread, looking for direction. Here's what's going on in my life today. You know, having a, fun, having a hard time, you know, what's going on, you know, you know, kind of waiting for God to show up, wishing he wore a watch and checked the calendar, you know, because he ain't showing up on my time frame, you know, kind of having a hard time accepting that. You know, he's one of my best friends. My wife will tell you I've never met him. Lives in California. He was given to me as a gift from another guy that says, hey, you work crazy-ass hours. You, let your, you, know, you can't plug into the fellowship because you're not getting home from work till 3 in the morning. Okay, so you can't go to night meetings most of the time. And by the time you get home and you get a decent night's sleep, you're sleeping past the day meetings and you really can't go to the – you sleep past the morning meetings and you can't go to the full day meeting because you've got to go back to work. You know, your life in the fellowship – is deteriorating at this time. So here's some other options to take care of that. Call this guy. When you get off work at 2.30 in the morning, he's a, he's a long-haul trucker in California. Last time I checked, they're three hours behind us. So when I'm getting, work, getting off work at 2 in the morning, he's about to start his day. You know, my cell phone after 9 p.m. is free, so it doesn't even cost me a nickel to get in touch with this guy. And I get to call him, and I get to talk with him, and we get to have a meeting over the phone. You know, one alcoholic working with another, you know, that's what this whole deal is about. You know, Dr. Bob in his last talk said, you know, that the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous boil down to two words, love and service. You know, coincidence it's the name of my group? I don't think so. You know, that's what we do, love and service. You know, I love you and I want to help you. You know, but the only problem is, you know, like one of the, you know, one of the guys I'm currently working with, you know, some people don't want to do what it takes to get well. You know, if this was cancer, I cannot lay down and get chemotherapy for you to get well. You know, I cannot take the steps for you. I cannot get experience for you. You know, I was, t you know, I'm a CD junkie. You know, when Chris told me when I met him at this big book thing, oh, man, you should come down to Barnegat, New Jersey. And I'm like, New Jersey, man, I don't know. I got this preconceived notion and delusion that, you know, all you Jersey people want to be like New Yorkers, you know. <laughs> You know, I don't know about that. And I was like, geez, you people get cheaper gas and you don't got to get out of your car to pump it and your taxes are cheaper. It's like, you know what? Anybody got a house for sale? See me after the meeting. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's delusion and it's not truth. You know, and I come down here because Chris says, you know, carry a message, man. I like what you have to say. You know, I like what you had to say. Him and I got to know each other. You know, we're like brothers. And we were only together for three days at a conference. You know, but we're there at a conference listening to solution, listening to a way of life that is far better than anything I could have imagined for myself. You know, that same sponsor who walked me through the steps, you know, 
He said, Matt, you know that whole thing about, you know, life beyond your wildest dreams? I'm like, yeah. He goes, Matt, give up on your wildest dreams. He goes, do not limit God's handiwork. Let him show up. Let him do. Let him show through you what he can do. And my exact words to that gentleman, you know, were, I know it works for you. I know it works for your sponsor. And I see it working for a whole hell of a lot of other people. You know, I don't know if it's going to work for me. And he said, Matt, take a look at the condition of your life when you walked in here. He goes, do you really think it can screw it up any worse? Give it a shot and see what happens. And that was, like I said, that was about October, November of 1996. And here I stand, you know, 14 years later. Sorry to say, Joe, you know what? <laughs> it works, okay? I was wrong, okay? It was the first time in my life I was, I was able to admit that I did not know what was best and do something about it. I stopped trying to prove that AA didn't work a long time ago because it does, you know? Opening line of how it works, chapter 5. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Not thoroughly gone to a shitload of meetings. Not joined the sober bowling team. You know, not go to the diner. Okay? Followed our path. If given a course of action, what am I going to do? When I take that action, it works. And I'll close with one of the other prayers that I say every time I look at it and I wear it on my wrist. You know, it was written by Father Michael Judge, FDNY chaplain who died 9-11-2001. He was one of us for anybody who didn't know that. Okay? He's the first person marked dead that day. When they were doing his autopsy and they were emptying out his bunker gear, they found a slip of paper and in his handwriting was a prayer that he wrote. You know, it's now referred to as the Father Michael, you know, Father Michael prayer. Okay, Lord, take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say. And keep me out of your way. And just because my big book says to, I throw with thy will and not mine be done on the end of it. And every time I look at my wrist and I have to stop, I have to pause and say that prayer, I know I'm taking an active fifth step, uh, active tenth step. Because my book says we pause when agitated or doubtful. I pause. I say that prayer. I get to get back onto God's beam. You know, and I get, and I get a shot at happy, joyous, and free. Regardless of how much my disease hates that. You know, I don't know about you people, but the, the more I get closer to God, the more my disease and my ego hates it. But that's okay with me. And I believe that's okay with my wife. I don't like to speak for her. You know, and my family likes it. You know, my sobriety, I guess, can best be summed up by Yankee Doodle Dandy. You know, my mother thanks you. My father thanks you. My brothers thank you. And I thank you. God bless us all.